Well, again, we're glad that you're here today. Thanks for being with us at Grace. It's great having Carter here, isn't it? Yeah, it's good having him. We don't get to see Carter as much, so great having him leading. And as you know, Jay's there. He's just analyzing everything. So, uh, yeah. And did you, did you go get Erin and actually bring her to church for like the first time? All right, nice. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, that's good stuff. Woo, yeah. We, uh, we're in a series, 10 Degrees Hotter. But before I get to that, just want to touch on what has already been said earlier. Kalahari is happening. Over 2,000 teenagers are there. Um, hundreds of them have come to Christ, 45 from our own uh, our own church where we have almost 300 of our kids there and just a, it's a great weekend. Please keep praying as they wrap everything up and uh, we'll, we'll get them home soon. Our series, 10 Degrees Hotter, is uh, really serves as a theme for our whole year. Our series won't last that long, but uh, as, as we do that, we just want to go through some different areas of our life, challenging ourselves on maybe how we can be more passionate about God in some different areas. And, and the idea is that we would increase our passion, that we would inc- become closer to God, that we do this in a practical, if, if not incremental, kind of a way. So that's why we have 10 degrees hotter. Last Sunday, we talked about prayer as we started off the new year. And hopefully some of you, during this last week, and, and continuing throughout the year, hopefully, but you have discovered that, uh, that you can be a little more passionate about prayer, that you have increased your prayer life or, or changed it up in some way uh, that you're 10 degrees harder. If that happened to you, it's happened to me this week. Anybody that experienced that kind of a thing? We just want to put that into practice. And then today we're talking about the Bible. It's very interesting as we talk about Scripture because our culture, the way it views the Bible changes a little bit, and because of that, the truthfulness, the trustworthiness of the Bible is questioned in different ways. For example, now, it'd be very common, and maybe some of you have heard this, have you ever heard somebody express something like this? Well, the Bible, it has good stuff in it, but it also has some some bad stuff, some things that are wrong, some things that are regressive or behind the times that's really not updated, so you can't go by all of it. Anybody hear somebody voicing something like that? So it's what we want to address today. And as we, we dig into this, of course, a lot of the times when you're trying to prove the trustworthiness of the Bible, you, don't, you try to avoid using the Bible to do that because if they don't trust the Bible to begin with, making your case from the Bible doesn't really work, right? Circular reasoning. So try to avoid that. But there is a text that I want to read. It's really the bookends of the Gospel of Luke. I want to read from a few verses from the very beginning and then a passage from the end. I think it sets a little bit of the context of what we'll talk about. So if you follow along, I'm going to start in Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And now let's go to the last chapter of Luke. It's it's chapter 24. I want to read a passage from there. This is a passage 
where two men are leaving Jerusalem. It's actually Resurrection Sunday. They've just witnessed all the events that happened during the last week, Jesus' trial, crucifixion, all that stuff. And they're walking to a village a short distance away, Emmaus, and Jesus, without them knowing it, joins them. Here's how that story goes, beginning in verse 13, Luke 24. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as as you're walking? And, And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also someone among among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of the men, I'm sorry, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said, but him they did not see. And now Jesus replies to them. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Just want to use those bookends to put things into perspective But what we're talking about today is we're answering the question, can we trust the Bible? And what I want us to see is we can trust the Bible historically. We can trust the Bible culturally because there's more and more of those kind of questions. And we can trust the Bible personally. First of all, we can trust the Bible historically. Many believe this. And although it's proven to be false, but it still hangs around. People have this idea that we really don't know much about the historical Jesus. That there was a man that named Jesus in the first century who lived and died. And after his death, some stories were circulated around uh, about him. And, and they sort of grew. And then after that, some people started writing some things down. 
And then after that, a few hundred years later, some church leaders were trying to consolidate power and influence over people. And so they went to these legends and myths that had developed over time and they picked and choose which ones they wanted and they promoted those and then they suppressed the others and that's how you have the Bible. By the way, that is completely wrong. We can prove that that's wrong and we can do that several ways. And I'll try to resist the temptation to get a bunch of props and pile up a bunch of papers. You've all, a lot of you have probably seen me do that and use the auditorium of the authenticity. But try not to do that. But it's, it's, it's just that. How can we prove that that's wrong? Well, first of all, the New Testament documents are way too early to be myths or legends. The New Testament documents, we can prove, date back to the first century. So there's no time. It, date backs, it dates back to the time, the lifetimes of the people who knew Jesus. So there's no time for myths and legends to develop. Because that takes decades and even centuries for that to happen. We know that the Bible was written in the first century. And we also know that what was written is exactly what we have today. Huge. It's huge. Of course, some, they would say that, uh, that people... And notice how Luke starts to say that people didn't do that. Here, what is he talking about? He's talking about eyewitnesses in the first chapter. Having investigated everything carefully, he's saying. So that you may know the exact truth he's talking about. He's there in the first century when people are still living eyewitnesses. He's talking to them and he's compiling this account of Christ's life. He's recording eyewitness testimony. Why? Because they're still alive. Of course, not just Luke. You have Mark, who's an associate of Peter, recording it. You have John and Matthew, who were the eyewitnesses themselves of the events. Not only that, you have Paul, who's writing 15 to 20 years, wrote several books, 15 to 20 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection. That he's saying things like, in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the earlier books written in the, Old, in the New Testament, he's saying, hey, at one time after the resurrection... Jesus appeared to many people, but one time he appeared to over 500 people at once. And then he's including the fact, as he's writing, and many of these people are still alive today, 15 or 20 years later. Why is he saying that? Go check it out, he's saying. He's writing a public document in order to promote Christianity. There's no way he could say that if that was false because it would undo everything that he was trying to do. Some people say, well, the divinity of Jesus, that really didn't develop until later. That's exactly wrong. 15 to 20 years after the resurrection, Paul is writing to the Philippians. He records what seems to be a hymn that he's just picking up and recording for us about the divinity of Jesus. That already existed 15 years after the resurrection. It's all way too early. You have things like documents, P-52, a papyrus, they find in Alexandria, not even in Israel, in Egypt, and that dates to about 110, but they're saying, well, if this is found here in Egypt at 110, well, it had to be of first century origin because it spread all this way. That's the point, and those documents are exactly what we have in our New Testament today. They're just fragments of that, but we can line them up, and they match exactly. 
people believe this erroneous view, you can prove it to be false, but somehow it still gets circulated around, that hundreds of years after Christ, Constantine, the first Christian emperor of Rome, somehow declared that, that Jesus was divine, and because he was in power, he made that happen, and that changed Christianity. No, that's not the way that happened. We can show Jesus himself said he was divine. His followers worshipped him as God since the resurrection, since the very beginning. And it was Constantine, if you wanted to be cynical about it, you could say he saw that Christianity had already won the information war and so he got on the winning side. It was all done. That was all history before Constantine ever arrived on the scene. The documents are too early. Not only that... The documents are too counterproductive to church leaders. So here's what people would have you to believe. Again, you can already prove it false by the documents, but just the logic of it. So you have church leaders who want to control the masses, so they suppress what they don't like about Jesus, promote what they do, and they end up with the New Testament, especially the four Gospels. Well, it wouldn't happen that way. Why? Because the documents that they're supporting, it undercuts their own authority. How does it do that? Because the apostles are depicted in the Bible as, they're doofuses. I mean, they're just, they don't, they don't come, they're always, they're slow-witted. They never seem to catch on. At, the, at, his, at Christ's arrest, they, they, betray, they abandon him in a cowardly way. This is going to help consolidate their power because they're saying they get their authority from the apostles. No, that undercuts their authority. Does that make sense? And then the other thing is just the style in which they're written. Uh, there's hundreds of arguments. It's, it's the, they're too detailed in their form. In the modern world today, we have what we call uh, realistic fiction. Uh, that's how people write novels. And, but you have to understand that literary form did not exist in the first century. That's why when we read about legends and myths, how many of you ever read the Iliad by Homer or tried to read the Iliad, ancient, ancient book? Or, or Beowulf? You know, that does not read like the New Testament. It does not contain details that aren't uh, key to the arc of the story. This is written, better, better than me, C.S. Lewis, which this was his business, as he was um, considering Christ as an adult, he's a world-class literary critic. And so here's how he's realizing as he interacts with the New Testament. Here's what he says when reading the Gospels. I've been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know none of them are like this. Of this text, he's talking about the Gospels, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, and what he means by that, somebody just reporting what happened, it's just history. Either this is reportage or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. What's he saying there? 
He's saying you can just tell by the form that they're written in. They're written in a form that did not exist for fiction or legends or myths in the first century. That whole class of literature didn't come to be until a few hundred years ago. That's what he's telling us. We can tell just by the way we read it. Nobody wrote that way unless they were reporting what was true. We can trust the Bible historically. We can trust the New Testament. Of course, some people push back and say, okay, that's the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Well, it's a little harder because it's further away from us. But we can apply those same tests to the Old Testament and we know it's right. For example, we know the Old Testament hasn't changed in over 2,000 years because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Same stuff, no changes. We get all that. But if you want to, and so you could go through all the same proofs. But if you wanted to take a shortcut for proving the validity of the Old Testament, you would just say this. Is the Old Testament trustworthy? Yes, if. Yes, it is. If Jesus is who he said he is. If Jesus is who he said he is, the son of God, well, his whole ministry, he validated every section of the Old Testament by quoting it as authoritative. So if Jesus is validating it, how do we know the Old Testament? We want to take a shortcut, we just say, well, if you believe in Jesus and who he said he was, well, he's the one that says the Old Testament is good to go because he quoted it in an authoritative way. So you can go on and on with these arguments to show the historicity of the Bible or that we can trust the Bible historically. But now here's the thing. We can also trust the Bible culturally. More and more as science has come and archaeology come in and show that the Bible hasn't been changed over time, just some of the arguments I've been talking about, more and more now the pushback on the Bible from people is, more, is less historical and more cultural. For example, it's what we started off with. People will say, well, Bible's good stuff, but there are things that are wrong, things that are regressive, things that, that we now know should not be. That it's, it's culturally, it, it's not up to date. It's not with the times, people would say. It's offensive, it's regressive. It says things that are... Here's the major problem. There's a lot of problems with that, but here's the first problem with those statements. A lot of the times, the Bible is not endorsing what critics of the Bible think it's endorsing. And the two best... We'll go through a few of those. But here's some examples of that. There were two ancient laws that were universal in ancient times. And that was... Just two things that always happened in, in all cultures in ancient times. And that is polygamy and the law of primogeniture. Polygamy, so follow along, and we see that in the Bible, right? So scripture opens with creation. Genesis chapter 2, God says, one man for one woman for a lifetime. That's God's ideal. But then later in Genesis, for example, we read about all the patriarchs all the leading men of the Bible, and a bunch of those guys, if not almost all those guys, have multiple wives. And so people will say, see, the Bible condones polygamy, but the Bible does not condone polygamy. The Bible, this is the difference between narrative and moralistic teaching. 
The Bible's not condoning. The Bible's just telling you what happened. Somebody murders somebody. The Bible tells you about it. It's not condoning it. So the Bible's just narrative teaching us what happened. That polygamy was there. It's not saying it was a good thing. As a matter of fact, if you read the text of Genesis... And you read what happened in those families of the men who had multiple wives. It was always a disaster, right? Did it ever work out good for them? Never. It was always a problem. One wife is enough. You know, that's, that's what they're saying. Just keep cap it off right there. They said that before. And Jesus is saying the same thing afterwards. That's just narrative, just telling you what happened, not condoning every little thing that happened in the story. And then you have the law of primogeniture, which I already mentioned, which is in ancient times, universal among cultures, the oldest son got everything or, or most of everything. And, and yeah, that happened. And is that recorded for us sometimes in the Bible? Yeah, it's recorded as a narrative that that happens sometimes. But look at what... Genesis, for example, is saying, look at the Bible, what's happening through the Old Testament. All of a sudden you have, it's Isaac over Ishmael, the younger brother over the older brother. Isaac over Ishmael. Jacob over Esau. Joseph over his older brothers. David over his older brothers. On and on. What's happening here? The Bible is undermining those ancient laws that are contrary to his word. It's recording it in narrative, but the whole arc of the story, everything we learn from that is that the Bible is, is undermining those laws that are against God. Does that make sense? Get it? Good, yeah, yeah. Follow, yeah. So that's what, it's not promoting, it's just letting us know what happened. It's the same thing. How many of you have talked to somebody about the Bible and then they'll say something like this? Well, the Bible promotes slavery and we know that's wrong. Anybody ever hear that? Maybe you guys aren't talking to people about the Bible enough here. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, several. Well, the Bible promotes slavery. That's wrong. The Bible does not condone slavery. And then they'll push back and say, well, Paul, Paul said in the New Testament, slaves obey your masters. He also said, masters treat your slaves with dignity. But Slaves, obey your masters. Here's the problem with that. When we, we all come to the Bible, and we have to know that we have cultural blinders on. So we come to Scripture, when modern people, especially in America, but Europe also, when we read about slavery, what comes into our mind is 18th, 19th century African slave trade. This is not the slavery that's recorded for us in the Bible. The Bible's not condoning it either way. But what's in the Bible is more like what we would call indentured servanthood. What we would call bankruptcy law. Where somebody got into so much debt, the way they got out of that debt is they sold themselves into slavery for X amount of years. And they were able to get out of debt or provide for their family. Now, there are some differences. When they sold themselves into slavery, the peop their masters didn't own them. The masters owned their productivity for part of the days, and usually not even every day. And so in first century times, it, it was not race-based, had nothing to do with race. 
you would not be able to identify a slave from a common person. They would look the same, act the same, dress the same. You wouldn't be able to tell them apart. They could make money. They could buy their own freedom. We have examples of that. And what happens is we come in with, with our cultural assumptions. And so we think when Paul says slaves obey your master, we're, we're thinking roots. You know, we're thinking, yeah, 18th, 19th century, they're treated horribly. It's all, it's race-based. That is not the slavery we're talking about. As a matter of fact, we know that because both the Old Testament and the New Testament condemn kidnapping. And the African slave trade was based on kidnapping, always condemning kidnapping. That, and so this is why. How can we prove that through history? Well, you can see it through history. Because at the beginning, back when it was just indentured slavery, Christian people avoided it, but they didn't campaign against it. It served a purpose to pay off debts. But in the 18th and 19th century, when Christians were confronted with the African slave trade that was race-based slavery, Christians campaigned to end slavery, and it's the Christian movement that was responsible for us not to have that slavery today. Do you see the difference? That's what we're talking about. And we need to teach people this because they come to the Bible with these assumptions that it's wrong. And it's really, they're just reading scripture with with the wrong assumptions. They're they're not reading scripture with the historical mindset of what it really is. We can trust the Bible historically. We could talk about that all day. And you do not want me to do that. (laughs) We can trust the Bible culturally. Every culture is going to be offended by something in the Bible. You know why? Because the Bible is not written by a culture. It's written by God. And so we would expect that every culture, in every time through the centuries, there would be something that would offend. Happens all the time. It's always like that. I'll give you an example. You know, today we'll read the Bible. And, we'll, and people will come away with that and say, okay, well, here's what I'm getting from the Bible. Whoa, tough on sexuality. Hated that. I, I can't go by that. But that forgiveness stuff, forgiving people that have done you wrong, I like that. And so something offends us, sexuality. Today, you go to the Middle East, and, you ta- and they understand that the Bible teaches those things. And here's what they would say. Sexuality... Could be a little stricter, a little bit loose there. Forgiving your enemies, that's nuts. Can't go by that. Same Bible, different cultures, different things offend people in the Bible. You can trust it historically. You can trust the Bible culturally. And then third, you can trust the Bible personally. You can trust the Bible for you. It's God's revelation to you, to teach you about who he is. And it's really the Bible that brings personal intimacy, allows us to have personal intimacy with God. Because it's our authority. And people mess this up all the time. If you went down this week and bought a brand 
new car right off the lot, brand new. They hand you an owner's manual, right? And you want this car to last, so you look at the owner's manual and you try to figure out how, when do I need to change the oil, you know, three or 6,000 miles, whatever they're saying these days, and what kind of fuel do I need to put in it and all this stuff. But what if somebody, because they're enlightened, said, I'm buying the new car. Hey, I've driven cars before. I'll do what I want with this car. I'll, ch I'll, the oil ch I'll change the oil when it's convenient for me, if I feel like it. How, how many times do you feel like changing your oil? You know, so and I'll put in whatever fuel that's convenient for me and whatever fuel I feel like because I can do anything I want. It's my car. Of course, what happens? If they're not doing the things that the owner's manual says, pretty soon they destroy their car, right? Nobody recognizes the car's, a, a car's owner's manual as an authority in their life, but it is about the car. It's an authority in your life about how to treat your car. Well, what if we've been created by a God who loves us? And he's telling us, this is how you need to live. Why can we trust the owner's manual of the car? Because the people who built the car know what it needs. And it's the same with us. Our maker knows what we need. And he's telling us how to live our life. But people... They just get sideways on all that. What people do is they look at the Bible, and, and a lot of times they respect the Bible, and a lot of times even Christians, people who say they're Christians, they look at the Bible and say, most of this is good stuff. Ah, but there's a few things in here that, you know, for me and the way I live in the 21st century, I don't really need to go by that. And they pick and choose what they want. Out of scripture. By the way, that's what the Bible's critics accuse us of. They talk about slavery, talk about polygamy, all that stuff. And then they'll get into all the, how many of you have heard people, well, what about all the cultural laws? You got to eat a certain thing. You got to dress a certain, you don't go by that. So, you know, you, you go by some things in the Bible, not all, anybody hear that line of reasoning? What's the answer to that? Well, it's the Bible. What's about, the Bible tells us there are certain moral laws that the New Testament says are written on our heart. I mean, they jive with us. We're like, whoa, yeah, that is the way it should be. But then in the Old Testament, we have other types of laws, and that's what they're talking about, Old Testament, where there's ceremonial laws. But the, but the Bible's telling us Jesus has fulfilled all the ceremonial laws. We don't go by those anymore. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled them. That's over. And then there are all these societal laws. Well, why don't we go by that? What we wear, what we be, because the Bible tells us we don't. Is it true that we don't go by anymore everything that's in the Bible? You can say that, yes, that's true, but it's the Bible that tells us which ones to go by and which ones not to go by anymore. So the Bible's still the authority. That is not cherry-picking. That's going by the whole Bible and telling and following exactly what it says. Does that make sense? We can trust it 
culturally, and we can trust it personally, our owner's manual. So we have this charge, and even sometimes Christians are guilty of picking and choosing things out of the Bible that they want to go by and they want to reject. How many of you, there's actually two movies, The Stepford Wives. Anybody know what I'm talking about when I say the movie? Let me give you the premise here. Some guys in Stepford, Connecticut, figure out how to turn their wives into robots. And they do that because then their robot wives can't ever contradict them, could never cross their will, could never do anything that they don't want them to do. So boom, they think they've hit the jackpot, right? And so they have these wives. Now, with the premise of that, we could look at that relationship that they had with their robotic wives, and we could say it's compliant, you know, the wives are compliant, it, it might be a peaceful relationship, I'm, you're never arguing, but we would never describe a relationship like that as intimate or personal, right? Because the wives have no will. The wives can't ever contradict us, have a different thought. They can't ever push back. They can't ever argue. So we never have a real relationship. All right. So what happens when people, even people who call themselves Christians, look at the Bible, let's say the New Testament, for example, and they pick and choose the things they want to go by, but they decide other things they don't want to go by. We talked about sexuality, for example, and forgiveness. Oh, yeah, forgiveness. I really need to do that. Sexuality, the eh, Bible's kind of outdated on that one. When we, you know, I'm not picking on that. Just any, anything, anytime we're picking and choosing, doesn't matter what the topics are. What we're doing is we are creating for ourselves a Stepford God who will never contradict us or argue with us or offend us because we've eliminated everything that we today finds offensive in our personal life. So we create this step for God. But what does that mean? It means, do we know him personally? Do we have a personal relationship? No. We have, a, we have an imaginary relationship with imaginary God that we made up in our image the way we want it so we could never be offended. And if you've done that, you do not have a personal relationship with the God of the Bible. You see the danger in that. You cannot have a personal relationship with somebody who can never offend you. You can't do it. Who will never have a different point of view. The only way that we can really have a relationship with God is to know him how he has revealed himself. He knows everything about us. He created us. But the only way we know anything about him is what he has revealed to us through his word and through his son. And that's how we know him. But we have to go with all of the Bible. We have to take the, entire, the entirety of the Bible. Or what we're doing is we're creating for ourselves a non-offensive fake God. 
Does that make sense? Get it? Good. And God wants all of us to know him. Back to our story. These guys are walking away from Jerusalem. It's Easter Sunday morning, first Easter, Resurrection Day. They don't know that that's happened. They've just seen all the events. Christ's triumphal entry coming in. People shouting, Messiah, Messiah, son of David, the fervor. Everything's going great. And then he's betrayed and arrested and eventually goes through some mock trials. And he's tortured to death. Dead. Buried. Now his body's missing. And Jesus joins them without them knowing who he is. Ask what's going on. They're relaying all this. How do you not know this? It's the biggest news around here. And what does Jesus say? Don't you know? Don't you understand? What do they say? They're, they're, they even stop walking. Did you catch it? They stop. They're sad. And they're, they're totally dejected. And, and Jesus, and they're saying, we had hoped this prophet, mighty in word and deed, would redeem Israel. He's dead. And, and Jesus stands there and he says, don't you understand? The death, that's what it took to redeem Israel. That's the whole point. And then he goes from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. The Old Testament all the way to their point in time. Showing them all the things that the Old Testament said about Jesus. The whole sacrificial system. The law. The problem of none of us being able to follow the law. The sacrificial system that was just temporary. All lands on Jesus. They stop. They eat a little bit. They realize who they're talking to. Jesus is gone. And what do they say? Were not our hearts burning when he was explaining scripture to us? That's how it should be for all of us. Talk about 10% hotter. Talk about more passion in our hearts for God. Ever experience that? Reading God's word and you just get fired up or, or maybe it's at church and here's some teaching and this kind of comes to light and it just jazzes you up, fires you up, pumps you up. That ever happen? God's word. That's how God communicates himself to us. Every word of the Bible is true. Every word, not part of it. Churches and people become unhinged from the Bible because they start picking or choosing. We cannot do that. It's the entire word of God or it's nothing or we've changed God. It's, it's God. Do we act like that's true in our daily life? There's regions in the world where people don't have the whole Bible. Some don't have any of it. And we're working to, to help that. We're in a country where 
In any given home, there's multiple Bibles. And now we have it electronically on our phones, our iPads. Are we reading it? Are we finding out more about God? Are we letting God's word offend us, confront us, challenge us on areas of our life? Because we need to. Because that's what always happens when you're in a real relationship. Let's stand together for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that because you're so transcendent above us, we could never know you unless you revealed yourself to us. And that's exactly what you've done. And God, you've helped us to see. And Father, I pray for us here, all of us, Lord, that we would have a better understanding of your word, that we would desire it, that we would grow passionate about it, that we would want to know you better by the information that you give us. And whatever that means in each individual life, whatever adjustment they need to make, to more consistently download your word into their life. I pray that you'd make that happen in all of our lives. God, thank you. Thank you for communicating to us, revealing yourself, Lord, in a personal way. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks for being here. Continuing 10 degrees hotter next Sunday. See you then. And it may actually be 10 degrees hotter. Who knows? See you next Sunday.